We've been called into God's presence to worship him. You have come. We've seen how majestic God is from Psalm 8. And we are not God. So now we must confess our sins to God because we are unworthy to be in his presence unless we have confessed our sins and have been forgiven. I'm going to read from Exodus 20. This is where we call the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we gloss over this, but immediately after God delivers the people of Egypt out of slavery, think of sin, he delivers us out of our sin, he graciously instructs us on how we should live as free men. Exodus 20, and God spoke all these things saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you should do your labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the soldier who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and on the seventh day rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. We usually end reading there, but after hearing these words, what was the reaction of the people of Israel? Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning that the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We die in our sins unless we repent from our sins. And now, let us as a congregation, for all in the group of sinners, all in the group of slaves who were set free by, the, by Jesus Christ, let us bow down and kneel before our maker. All right, this morning we have Genesis 37, a story I'm sure many, if not all of you, are familiar with in some degree, right? We have Musicals made after it, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. We have stories galore, children's stories. Um, but aside from all those different stories made from it, uh, and I titled the sermon, The Realities of the Fall, this story 
when you look at it by itself, is actually quite sad. But we, as Christians, as believers in Christ, do not end there. So I want us to look at this in the right context this morning. I just want to preface it that this is a sad story in of itself, right? It's mimicking the story of Cain and Abel, the fall in the descent into sin and the curse upon the land, right? So I just want to give you that preface before we begin, because as Christians, we have an eternal hope, and that's where we're going with this story. But right now, right now, it is the fall. So if you could open your uh, Bibles or on your phone to Genesis 37, I am going to read the whole chapter this morning. So I'm just going to begin, and you can start to follow along. I did time it. It takes about four and a half minutes, so bear with us. I think the details are important, though. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, as a land, <clears throat> in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the, uh, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent them from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them saying, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, 
Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him, that is Joseph, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and their camels bearing gum, ball, and myrrh, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without, a, without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the story of Joseph this morning. We ask that you would speak through your text, speak through me to encourage the saints here. Um, to speak accurately and well of what you um, want to communicate and work in us each and every day uh, for the holiness and the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what we have here in Genesis 37 is no short of brotherly betrayal, right? It's not a pretty story. Um, it is very reminiscent, as I mentioned, of Cain and Abel, right? It's not the garden. And it's not how the family is intended to work. So let's set the context here just a little bit. I think it can help us if we get an idea of and we're reminded of what this family is like. Jacob, remember, tricked his brother early on. And then he goes and works for Laban for seven years. And then he's tricked, right? And he marries Leah. And then he works seven more years and gets Rachel, the wife whom he actually wanted to marry in the first place. And then we have the birthing of all the sons, right? And Rachel, the wife whom Jacob loved the most, was not able to um, give him any sons, right? But Leah could. And so we have a family dynamic that is wrought with bad dynamics, basically, right? Jacob, Jacob may not have been the best father. And we have sons from four different mothers. And here we find out that Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, the loved wife, is the favorite of Jacob. Now, to set some context, um, 
the firstborn traditionally, especially in the ancient world, was supposed to receive all the blessing and favor from uh, the father. Right? We saw that with the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau technically was the firstborn, even though they were twins, and he was to receive the birthright, right? which is the, the larger part of the father's inheritance. And in that, the father is supposed to train up the firstborn. And the firstborn is supposed to watch over the rest of the family, help guide, guard, and keep the family. Exactly opposite of what Reuben our first, the firstborn in this story is doing, right? Reuben is the firstborn of Leah. And you can just imagine kind of the, the family dynamic at play here. Joseph, 17 years old, Reuben's probably 25 to 30 years old, quite a bit older, has been around the block a little more, has been uh, taking care of all the brothers, helping his father. Uh, he's not favored by his father. Now, is Jacob perfect in this? No, Jacob once again, is not doing probably the faithful thing, which is honoring that birthright and showing love to all of his children. Instead, Jacob, he decides to favor Joseph, so much so that he makes him a robe, right? a special robe, many colors. So what that kind of indicates to us is he spent a lot of money on it. right? Getting a robe of many colors woven together was not cheap in that day. It's kind of like... I don't know, a good equivalent. Maybe if you gave firstborn like a super, super nice car or something, or someone, and then you gave your firstborn like a you know, 20-year-old junker, something like that, right? The, the disparity is large, very large here. And to add insult to injury on top of Reuben, Joseph, the favored child, what does he do right away? He doesn't try to make peace with his brothers. No, he hangs out with his brothers. They're pasturing a flock. And then he brings a bad report of them to their father. Right? So we see this cycle happening already, right away in this family dynamic. Joseph's favored. Joseph's telling on the other brothers. And guess what? His brothers hated him. Right? So much so that it says here that they could not speak peacefully to him. I don't know if you've ever been in a spat with your sibling. Definitely tell you I have where... Uh, I'm a younger brother, so when I was a teenager, my goal was to always be better than my brother, even if that meant uh, physical altercations and frustrations, right? And there are times, definitely could not speak peacefully to my brother, right? That is born out of hatred, right? That's not born out of brotherly love, uh, as we learn we're supposed to do. And right, we see that back in Cain and Abel, right after the garden. Right? God made Adam and Eve. He made it perfect, and they sinned. And their sin brought a curse on the land. So much so that this curse is not just a physical curse on like plants that we're making or weather that's coming to destroy things. No, it's, inter it's woven into our DNA, this corruption that we cannot escape. And we see that with the story of Cain and Abel, and we see that here right away with Joseph. Right? It is pervasive and it is unrelenting. And guess what? Everyone will yield to it at some time in their life, unfortunately. That is the result of sin in the world. Sin begets sin. As Arnie mentioned earlier, sin comes in clusters. Right? We're going to see that pan out even more. You can't sin once and then it just be done. No, there's another way to be done with sin. That's repentance and faith in Christ, right? When we repent, we can stop sin 
from taking hold. But here, what we have is sin begetting sin, sin birthing sin, sin growing into more sin and to, into more deception. And so in the whole biblical narrative, right, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, a realization of the kingdom, right here, we are at a fall, right? We know the story of Joseph. We know that he's going to go to Egypt. He's going to essentially save the lands from a famine. And he will tell his brothers eventually what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But that's not where we're at right now. Right now, what we're seeing is the first part of that phrase, what you meant for evil, what his brothers meant for evil. So is this whole family dynamic just a product of poor parenting? Well, maybe, right? That contributes to it. But it, it is definitely a product of sin. So now we move on to the next part of the story. It's the dreams. And this is, this is I always find this interesting, dreams, especially in the ancient world, and we'll touch on that because I think there can be some misconceptions. But it's kind of the crux of the story, right? What causes the, the overflowing of sin such that his brothers will want to toss him into the pit? Well, it's these dreams. It's not just that he's an annoying little brother who his father favors. No, in fact, these dreams and the fact that he, he tells them these dreams is what pushes them over the edge to cast him into the pit and commit the type of evil. Right? And we have two dreams here. And this is common in the ancient world that people would interpret dreams. And sometimes there can be misconceptions that like, oh, they would just dream and then they would go to like a you know, oracle or a sorcerer for the false religions, and they would hear the dream, get an interpretation, and it means something. Well, it's not quite the case. Many times dreams came in pairs or triplets or sets of four, and it was repeated. And repeated dreams were very important. Now, something we're going to notice here is that Joseph is able to interpret this dream right away, right? And in fact, his brothers kind of get the meaning of the dream, so a little bit of foreshadowing, right? What happens later in the story? Potiphar, or Pharaoh, he has dreams, right? And who is the only one who's able to interpret it? Joseph. So it's pretty interesting that, you know, he has these dreams, and he basically says, look, brothers, you're going to bow down to me. That's what he's essentially saying. He doesn't say it, you know, directly, but he tells them, look, here's my dream. And they're like, are you serious? That can't be the case. And guess what? Sin begets sin. Instead of listening to his brother, right? Instead of the brothers listening to Joseph and being like, oh, maybe there's some validity. Like, are you just like, giving him some grace or benefit of the doubt? No. Instead, what it turns into is more hatred, right? Sin will only produce more sin. As you can see here in verse 8, it says, so they hated him even more. Why? For his dreams and his words. Then... Joseph, being, you know, maybe naively arrogant, we aren't really sure. Uh, and it's not really important to the story, honestly, if he's completely innocent or he's out of, acting out of a little bit of a youthful arrogance. He goes and tells his brothers and his father the dream he has again. Now, you can just imagine the family dynamic, right? Hey, brothers, I have this dream. You're going to bow down to me. And they're like, are you serious? Like, we can't stand you. And then he comes back to them another time, and he says, hey, guess what? I had another dream, and not only you, brothers, are going to bow down to me, but mom and dad are too, right? Sun and the moon are going to bow down to me. And they're like, 
you're crazy. Like, what is this nonsense you're doing? But take note, there's one man in this story who has also been communicated through dreams, Jacob, his father. Now, Jacob rebuked Joseph, and probably rightly so. Like, you're causing more distress upon the family. Like, what are you doing? This is nonsense. Are we going to bow down to you? But there's an interesting phrase, right? It, verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, right? So the hatred continues, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, I just want to remember back what happened in Jacob's life, right? He had a dream of angels ascending and descending on ladders. And that was a vision from God. Additionally, Jacob wrestled with God. So Jacob is familiar with kind of some odd things happening, having great importance. And what the text is telling us here is that Jacob's going to hold on to this, right? Because later in the story, we will see the, the joy of the restoration of Joseph to Jacob. But it makes you wonder, like, Jacob's kind of thinking maybe in the back of his mind, like, there might be some legitimacy to this. Like, what is this? And it gives us some hope. Now we turn to the third part of the story, and that is the betrayal, right? That is the consummation of sin. It's not only that, like, they hated him, that's the beginning of sin, but they wanted to kill him now. And they actually made a plan. And they made a plan to kill him and lie to their father. Once again, sin begets sin. Sin does not come individually. It will always come in clusters. But before we jump into that, I think sometimes the details of this part of the story, uh, verses 12 to the end, can get a little confusing. And some of that might be from just, you know, the language, the interpretation. A Hebrew tends to repeat things a lot. And sometimes the, the uh, subjects can get kind of lost in the weeds. Like, who is the he? What's happening here? Where is that? Why are we going down? What is down? Etc. So let me set the scene for you, okay? They're in Mount Hebron, which is south in Israel. And the, the brothers are pasturing in Shechem, which is further north. Shechem is north of the Dead Sea. And if you know anything about the geography, there are some mountains there. It is a great place to pasture sheep. Because guess what? There's rain, there's grass, there's rolling hills, lots of places for them to walk around, etc. So Shechem also will become a very important part later in the biblical narrative, which we won't touch on. But just keep that in mind that a lot of stuff happens in Shechem. Now Dothan, or Dothan is actually further north than Shechem, right? But it is down the mountain. So anytime you read, especially in the Old Testament, and they went down, me growing up here in Minnesota, I always think, oh, they went down to Texas. They went down to Florida, right? They went south, right? So, oh, they're going down. That means they're in Egypt. Well, sometimes it means that. As we see, they went down to Egypt, south. But many times, it means they're actually just going down in elevation. So if you're familiar with Colorado, it might be something like if you're in Vail, and you're like, oh, I'm going down to Denver. Well, Denver's not south. It's just like 7,000 or like, 3,000 feet lower in elevation. So the same thing here. So anytime you read that, this is a side note, um, many times it's actually just elevation change and not directional. And so Doth or Dothan, it is not in the mountains. It is more of a barren uh, wilderness in a sense. It's a little rougher. And it is a common route for traders. There's a road, and it still exists today, that actually runs north-south through Israel. 
So they went down to there, and there's a city, and they're pasturing the flock down there. And they see Joseph coming, and they're like, hey, let's conspire. But guess what? Reuben, Reuben wants to be the favorite child still. He still is holding on to this, maybe I can gain some favor with my father. So what does he do? He convinces his brothers not to kill their brother, but throw him into a pit. And then later, Reuben's going to go back, save Joseph, come back to their father and be like, hey, look, father, I found your favorite son. Now you're going to like me, right? So once again, we have sin begetting sin, like lies turning into lies, and it's not going to work out for them. So Joseph comes, uh, and that, so that's what it means, just side note, what it says, uh, and he rescued him out of their hands. He didn't actually take him out of their hands, right? But he, he metaphorically rescued them from his death. And so they toss him into this pit, and these pits are not pretty. Many of these pits are dried up wells, actually. So if you can imagine, they're probably about this big around, sometimes bigger, probably about 15, 20 feet deep, dark, musty. Uh, dried up wells, for example, they would house slaves in, right? They'd toss them like five of them into a pit, and then traders would come, and then they would get them out of the pit, right? It's a perfect place to keep things or people that you don't want escaping that you want control over. So many times they'd throw animals in there, etc. Sometimes these pits were dug um, for that purpose. It wasn't always dried up wells. We don't know what it is, but there's, there is an interesting side note here, right? There is no water. So they're in a hot climate. Joseph has just traveled a long ways. He's just been betrayed by his brothers and tossed into a pit that's probably deep, dark, and there's no water. It's not a very good day for Joseph, um, right? And then they go and eat lunch, and chances are they go off to the town, right? They go away from the, the wilderness. Uh, but interesting here, we just need to keep note that Reuben is probably not with them because Reuben comes back and is surprised that Joseph's gone. So it's the other 10 brothers together, and Judah's kind of the one who speaks out now. And I want you to take note of that because as we move forward, there's a certain person who speaks and who we learn more about in Genesis, and it's Judah, right? Right here, Judah, and we also know that Christ comes from the tribe of Judah, right? Judah is given a special blessing in Genesis, right? The Savior will come from Judah, and we're going to learn more about that later. But take note, right here, Judah, Judah kind of saves his brother again from certain death, right? They, they're going to want to kill him. And he's going to save them from the death. And he's like, hey, let's actually sell them to the Ishmaelites coming. Now, this can get a little confusing, so I just want to clear it up. This is like saying I have a Lutheran Minnesotan coming from Duluth going to Des Moines, okay? So I can say it a few ways. I can say the Minnesotan came. I can say the Lutheran came. I can say they're coming from Duluth, or I can say they're going to Des Moines. Same thing happening here. Ishmaelites, as we know, is a clan, basically. Uh, coming from Ishmael, not Isaac. That's important. They're coming from Gilead, which is pretty far north. They're born of Midian, and they're going down south to Egypt, which, by the way, is also lower in elevation. Um, so I just want to take note really quickly about the significance of it being an Ishmaelite, right? Judah's, what he's probably thinking here is like, look, we're from Isaac, Right? We're from the, the chosen, the blessed tribe, or the blessed son. Right? Ishmael, he was not of the promise given to Abraham. It's kind of an interesting uh, conspiracy that he could then cast Joseph off, 
to this hated clan, right? The, the clan not of the blessing, and therefore they're innocent, in a sense, of Joseph's blood. And that's kind of what's happening here. Is they're gonna, he sees the Ishmaelites coming, uh, and he wants to cast Joseph off to them. So they do that. They sell him to the Midianite traders, or the Ishmaelites, and then Reuben comes back, and he's surprised. He's like, what has happened? And guess what? Instead of going to their father, repenting of their evil, seeking forgiveness and mercy, they lie. And in fact, their original plan actually comes true. If we remember, they first off plan to kill Joseph, dip his robe in blood, and say a wild beast killed him. Well, guess what happens? Joseph's gone, and they dip his robe in blood, and they, now it's presumed or assumed by their father Jacob that a wild beast killed Joseph. Now, this is significant because Jacob, this hits Jacob harder than other deaths, right? Where I'm getting that is it says many days. Typically, there is a morning of seven or 40 days, right? There's a set time period. Additionally, he says, I shall go down to Sheol morning. The way that it has hit Jacob is basically, I'm going to be sad the rest of my life, right? This has hit me very, very hard. And that's kind of the realities, um, the realities of living in a fallen world when bad things happen. I want to tell you a story, um, personal story, of when I first really came face to face with the realities of death, with the realities of living in a fallen world. It was 2015, uh, Julia and I were dating. Um, I lived in California at the time. She was in Minnesota, and her father had um, multiple myeloma, which is um, bone marrow cancer. So it was terminal. Uh, we didn't know when he was gonna pass away, but uh, we knew that sometime, but he seemed like in good spirits, he was working still. He loved working, he loved having people around. Um, and I remember I called him over Thanksgiving weekend, and I called him to ask him for his daughter's hand in marriage and his blessing. We had a great conversation. We talked about CBS Sunday morning. I still remember it to this day, about a half hour conversation. Um, he was excited that I was gonna propose all this. But what I didn't know at the time was that was gonna be my last conversation with him that I ever had. About two weeks later, I get a call from Julia and he took a turn for the worst. So I fly back um, from California and He's in hospice care, and he's in a lot of pain. He can't speak. Um, I don't know if you know anything about bone marrow cancer, but it is very painful. Like, it, his bones hurt. And I, re I remember, because this, this will never uh, escape my mind, just the images and everything going on, um, but we were up with him basically two days straight. I don't think I slept. I don't think we slept. Um, just in so much pain, you could see the pain in his eyes and the sadness. And it was just, it was confusing for me at the time. I was a Christian, I had a lot of good, like I knew theology, some theology, like I was rooted. But the storm came, right? The storm came, the realities of the fallen world came. And I remember we were up with him all night and telling him about the gospel, praying, hoping that you know he is hearing and repenting and we have hope that he's in glory now. Um, but it was about six, I forget the exact time, we were up all night holding his hand, and I remember watching the moment that life passed from his eyes. The soul departed into the next world. 
but he was still breathing. He was breathing for about five minutes after that. Um, but it was so clear that this is not normal. This is painful. Like, why is this happening? Like, what is going on here? Like, if God wants to bless us, why do we still have this fallenness? Why do we still have things tainted? Why is disease plaguing us? Why do storms come and ruin? Like, we just had Hurricane Ian, I think it was, and destroyed houses. Why is this happening? Right? What is the cause of this? And it's very easy, and I was just kind of at wit's end of how do I deal with this? How do I process this? Right? Because I knew God was good, but the question came into my mind, was God good? Right? I knew he was, but did I truly know? Right? Why is there this suffering? Well, that's where it really helped for me to be grounded back into the fall. Right? And the reality is, is that we do live in a fallen world. Sin is present in this world, and it is a sad thing. And many times, things will happen to us that we don't think we deserve and we don't deserve, right? And death comes for us all, right? Sometimes we're, we're maligned by people, right? Some people are, you know, they're innocent and they're ill-spoken of and you're like, what's happening here, right? That's sin. Death comes, hurricanes come. What's happening there? That's sin. And the reality is, is that we want God to take care of the problem. We're like, hey, why don't you fix this? Right? In order for it to be fixed, sin has to be dealt with first, right? The curse, the corruption, the depravity that has seeped into every single part of our being, into our brain, into our heart, into our will, and that's what we mean by total depravity. When you hear it, it's not that you're as depraved as possible, but it is that every part of your being and every part of this world has been affected by sin. The reality is, is that's a result of the fall. But, but, I don't want to leave you on this dreary day with just sadness and, oh, look, Joseph's gone and there's sin in the world, right? Because there is hope. And that's what I learned. I learned that there is hope. And our hope as Christians is undying. It is eternal. And it is a true hope. And that is the joy of being a Christian, right? The way that sin is stopped in our lives is through Christ, through repentance and faith, right? There is now a way to eternal life. There is a redemption that's coming that will eradicate all the painful turmoils of this life. And that's why I chose Romans 8 here. Because I want us to take home that if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If we are cast into the pit as Joseph is, if the trials of life come at us and we're like, what is happening? Guess what? Christ is there. Because as we sung, sung earlier in the hymn, Christ departed or he left his throne above and he came to be one of us. Right? That's also in this passage in Romans. I don't know if we, I didn't notice it for a long time at least. We think of Christ as God and he is. Right? God the Father we also think of. Holy Spirit indwells us. But many times we forget that Christ is our elder brother. The elder brother that Reuben could not be to Joseph. Right? The true elder brother. The brother who takes care of us, who loves us, who keeps us, who guards us. And everything does work out for the good of those who believe. I learned that. And that good, what is that good? It's to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. 
we remember Christ came and he experienced all sorts of trials. He experienced the greatest sin that was ever done, right? Killing the innocent son of God. And what did he say on the cross? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That is how much he loves us. That is how much he loves you. And when you are in that trial, when you are in that storm, as he says in Matthew 7, right? The storm is coming. Storm comes for us all. Where are we building our house? Right? If we build it on Christ, guess what? That storm comes and we can weather it. And we have hope. We have hope that is undying. It is unquenchable, I should say, right? When you put a candle out and it keeps us going. For even a, a small earthly hope will give hope and even a small earthly hope will lead non-Christians through a lot of trials, right? How much more can a heavenly hope lead us and give us hope for the kingdom that will come? And so if you're in a pit, I want to give you that hope. Christ loves you. He is for you. This perseverance, as we see in Romans 5, produces hope. And that hope does not fail us because Christ rose from the dead. And so by hoping in him, we will overcome death through him, right? We will be risen again with him. But I also want to address if you are in the place of the older brothers, if you have sin or hatred in your heart for your brother or sister in Christ, or maybe a physical brother or sister, or just a neighbor, right? I want to call you to repentance, right? What Reuben and Judah and the other brothers did not do was repent and fear God and turn from their sin. But in Christ, we can. And so when any root of bitterness or hatred springs up in us, I want to call us to daily repentance. I do it in my life. I have to do it in my life, right? Sin is not, like you, be, you don't become a Christian and sin is just gone all of a sudden, right? We need to work out our salvation, daily repent, right? Listen to the spirit when he calls us that, yeah, I, I had hatred for my brother. I had hatred for my sister. I had hatred for my parents. I need to repent of that and turn to Christ. And guess what? When you do turn to Christ in that repentance, you are forgiven. As God said in Genesis 1, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. God's words come to fruition no matter what. And so what he promises and said, says will happen. And he promises that those who turn to him in faith and repent will have eternal life. And I can give you that hope today. And I just want to remind us, when we're in those trying times, especially if we want to seek uh, retribution for ourselves, to remember that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Christ, when he was dealt evil, repaid with good, right? He returned good for evil, and he calls us to do the same. And so I want to leave you today with a hope, a hope from Romans 14, right? A hope of the kingdom, right? What is the kingdom? Why is sin not eradicated? Well, the kingdom, as Paul tells us, if you're wondering, Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. And for that sake, it's not a matter of boundaries or borders or who's in charge um, in a country, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the kingdom and that is the hope we have. Christ came to deal with righteousness first and he has done it. And so I wanna encourage us in those dark times to turn to him, 
For he will give us hope and he will give us comfort, even though it may feel at the time very tough. You can have peace and it feel very sad. And that's what I found um, after processing uh, the death of uh, Julia's father was when encountering the realities of the fallen world, there was a lot of peace and sadness. There's a lot of peace in Christ and a lot of sadness for the realities of the world. The charge this morning is when you're in the pit or when sin is knocking at your door, remember to run to Jesus, to run to Jesus. And remember the promises laid out in Scripture when you're in the pit in Romans 8. All things work together for good, those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And you are called according to his purpose. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.